thank you all for being here, uh, at least virtually. Um, my name is Dave Rangaviz. I'm an appellate attorney in the Public Defender Division at CPCS, and I'm also a member of the BBA's Criminal Law Steering Committee, which organized today's webinar, and I'll be introducing the speakers today and moderating the webinar. Uh, today's webinar is speak today about things like uh, how to make the best record possible for an appeal, how to pursue an interlocutory appeal, and what to do after you lose a trial to perfect and prepare for your appeal. Uh, our speakers come from both sides of the V, so you'll get the defense perspective and the prosecutorial appellate perspective. I will not really say much, if anything, aside from this intro, but I'll be moderating the Q&A, uh, which you can find at the bottom of your screen. And feel, please feel free to ask questions, and I'll try to answer them as best I can. And if I feel like a question deserves some further discussion by one of our panelists, I may interrupt to ask your question. Um, so let me introduce our two speakers. Uh, first, Rebecca Kiley is the Chief Appellate Attorney in CPCS's Public Defender Division a role she has served in since February of 2018. She's a graduate of Harvard College and NYU Law School. After law school, she clerked at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and then worked for three years as a fellow and staff attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative uh, in Alabama. She joined CPCS as a trial attorney in the Roxbury uh, Dorchester Municipal Court Office in 2008, and she moved to the Appeals Unit in 2012, where she's now the chief. Julie Campbell is an assistant district attorney in the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office Appeals Unit. Uh, Julie graduated from Suffolk Law School and began her career in the Middlesex DA's office as a trial prosecutor in Lowell District Court. And following her time in Lowell, she joined the Suffolk DA's office where she prosecuted cases in the Dorchester and South Boston Municipal Courts before ultimately joining the Appeals Unit in 2016. As an appellate prosecutor, Julie's routinely arguing cases, uh, post-conviction cases in Superior Court, Appeals Court, and the Supreme Judicial Court. She also second chairs homicide trials in an effort to ensure a clean uh, record for an appeal. And she's a member of the BBA's Public Interest Leadership Program and the Boston Inn of Courts. Uh, so we'll start with Rebecca. So Rebecca, take it away. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thank you. Dave, for the introduction. I can't quite. Sorry. Okay. I I'm sorry, I was muted and now I believe I'm unmuted. <laughs> I think I'm okay. Uh, thank you. Um, I was just going to say that I can't quite recall when uh, Dave asked Julie and me if we were able to do this presentation, but I am confident that at the time that we agreed, we didn't know that it would be happening in the middle of both a profound moment of reckoning with our police and legal systems and also during a global pandemic that has effectively shut down our trial courts. Uh, in this presentation, at least, at least my presentation, does not really grapple with either of those realities. Um, so if you have a little trouble focusing, uh, I can only say that I am with you, um, but I appreciate you being here and I hope that you'll find this helpful. Um, as Dave also mentioned, I am going to be sharing the defense perspective. Uh, he described my biography. I have only ever been a defense attorney. Um, and so I will leave it to Julie to, to help out the prosecutors um, unless something seems obviously both sides to me. Um, 
All right, without further ado, I'm gonna share a uh, PowerPoint that I have. Um, um, so this is trial court practice from the appellate perspective. Uh, and I'm going to try to cover uh, the ins and outs of how to object, or at least the brief ins and outs of how to object, and other aspects of making a record. And I'll touch later on uh, specific considerations for jury selection, closing argument, and jury instructions. I will talk very briefly about interlocutory appeals, and, um, and I will also share some need-to-know information for defense attorneys following trial uh, about what your obligations to your clients are once the trial is over. Um, but to begin with why this matters, objections matter on appeal because with an objection, the defendant, if there, is, if there is a legal error, if the court finds an error has happened, then with an objection, the defendant will win unless the court can be sure that the error had only a very slight effect on the jury. Without an objection, the defendant will lose the appeal unless the court has a serious doubt that the result of the trial might have been different. And they are careful to note that errors of this magnitude are extraordinary. Relief is seldom granted. In other words, it makes a huge difference to a defendant on appeal um, if his lawyer objected during the trial. Uh, and of course, the other reason, you know, I, I, this is the appellate perspective, which is why I'm focused on this. But of course, the first and best reason that the objections matter is that if you win the objection, it will help you win the trial. Um, okay, so... In terms of motions to dismiss, to suppress, or sever, litigating those motions prior to trial will preserve the issue for appeal, and you don't need to continue to object um, after the trial has started to issues involving dismissal, suppression, or severance. And that's severance both in terms of severing your client's case from a co-defendant's case and also severing charges um, against your client. However, I will note that if the evidence comes out differently at trial than it did at an evidentiary hearing on the motion, there is an opportunity to renew the motion at trial. We hardly ever see this. Um, but for example, if a police officer testifies at the trial who did not testify at the suppression hearing and says something that makes you realize that there was a basis to, um, to establish that the search of your client was illegal, you can point that out to the judge and you can ask at that point that the suppression um, issue be renewed. Again, I have, I've hardly ever seen that. You are probably unlikely to encounter that circumstance, um, but I mention it in case you happen to find yourself in it. Motions in limine are in kind of a different situation than the types of motions that I just mentioned. Um, because a motion in limine may preserve an objection without renewal during trial, but that's only going to be true if the basis for the objection during the trial would be exactly the same as the basis on which you brought your motion in limine. Um, and so really the safest thing to do if you have objected to a witness testifying prior to trial via motion in limine, and then they're up there testifying because you were unsuccessful and you hear something objectionable, you, the safest thing to do is to object again. Um, because again, if the basis on which you would object is even a little bit different than the argument you made in the motion in limine, the issue won't be preserved without a new objection. This happened in Commonwealth versus Almili, which is mentioned at the bottom of this slide. 
Um, that case involved a pretrial motion in limine challenge to uh, the testimony of a police drug expert on the basis that he was not actually an expert, that he wasn't qualified to give expert testimony. Um, and when the case got to the SJC, one of the arguments that the uh, defendant was making was that the officer's testimony that the drugs were intended for distribution was improper testimony. Um, you know, and that, and that testimony is improper and it's improper because it goes to the ultimate uh, issue in, is an opinion offered on the ultimate issue in the case. And so the SJC said this was not covered by uh, your, your pretrial motion in limine, which was a different objection. Um, and this brings me to my next point, which is about standing objections, because the SJC did that in Al-Muli, even though in that case, the judge told the defendant, I'm noting your objection to the testimony of this drug cop for the reasons stated plus any other reasons and said your rights are saved, the issue is preserved. And the SJC still said, no, it's not because the particular issue in the case had never been um, highlighted for the trial judge. So that is, I think, one good example of why you shouldn't rely on what we call standing objections, right? When a judge says, I understand you object to this entire line of questioning, your rights are preserved, you don't have to keep standing up and objecting. Um, if a judge insists that you proceed that way, then of course you're gonna have to do that, but you'll want to be as clear as possible about what all of the potential bases are for your objection. Um, and you also will wanna keep listening and make sure that something that the, that the witness doesn't say something that is objectionable on a basis that you hadn't previously anticipated and expressed to the judge. Um, because if they do, then despite, you know, the instruction that you proceed by standing objection, you'll want to uh, interrupt at that point and note the, the nuance. So in addition, obviously, to objecting to any testimony or evidence that comes in that you think is prejudicial and inadmissible, you also want to object before and after any inadequate curative instructions that the judge gives. Um, so for example, uh, if the judge sustains your objection um, to hearsay testimony but gives an inadequate curative instruction, you need to object again. Otherwise, the appeals court is going to assume that you thought that's fine, the instruction has cured the prejudice. And, and on a related note, some judges will sua sponte uh, instruct the jury to disregard or strike any testimony um, that has been subject to an allowed objection. So you object and the judge often will just say, sustained, jury please disregard that testimony. If they're not doing that, you need to move to strike. Um, because if you don't move to strike, the evidence will still be considered evidence that is in the record. And when the appeals court is considering whether the evidence against your client was sufficient, they will consider that evidence if it hasn't been stricken from the record. Another issue that we see a lot is um, the absence of a proffer of evidence where it would be really helpful. If you're the proponent of excluded evidence, you have to create a record for the appellate court to review. Um, you know, so if testimonial evidence is excluded, for example, if you have an expert witness who you want to present um, and the judge has ruled that you cannot put that expert witness on, you've got 
to put on the record what that what that expert's testimony would have been or who, or what that witness's testimony would have been. You can describe it for the judge. In the case of an expert, I think you're also going to want to um, admit for the for record purposes the expert CV and any report that they did. Um, and better yet, you can ask the judge to excuse the jury and have the witness for dear to put some of that testimony on the record. And you also want to do that whenever the judge makes a ruling that causes you not to put evidence on that you otherwise would have put on. Um, and so, for example, I uh, long ago had a trial where I wanted my client's father to testify. And the judge ruled that if we put him on, that the prosecutor would be permitted to impeach him with a prior conviction that was pretty inflammatory. Uh, and we argued that the that the prior conviction shouldn't be allowed to be used in that way, and we lost, and so we decided not to put the, the father on. Um, and so we had to make a proffer of what his testimony would have been, um, because when that went up on appeal, if it was a legal error, and I'll be honest, I no longer recall what the basis of our objection to allowing him to be impeached that way was, but if that had been a legal error, if there had been some, some legal basis to say he can't be impeached with this prior conviction, you know, the appeals court might have agreed with that, but they would only have found prejudice if they also agreed that the testimony that that witness was going to offer would have made a difference in the trial, um, or could have made a difference in the trial. Uh, and so it's very important to make sure that you get that in the record. Similarly, if you have documentary or physical evidence that is excluded, make sure that it's marked for identification and entered in the record. The jury won't see it, but the appeals court will um, if, if the client is convicted. You're also going to want to explain to the judge, and this is really for record purposes, how the adverse ruling affects the presentation of the case. This will help establish prejudice on appeal. Um, it, you know, so, for example, if, um, if, if your defense is foreclosed or seriously hampered because the judge has ruled that this expert witness can't testify, you have to explain this is the only way that I have of establishing a battered women's syndrome defense and now we are left without a defense because that was the linchpin of our argument um, and just make it clear that that's that's where you were headed in the trial until you got the adverse ruling. Another thing to keep in mind that is really important is that when the appeals court is looking at the what happened in your case they're looking at paper. They have a paper transcript and that is it. Um, and so it's really important to describe for the record all of the things that cannot be seen. The, um, it can be really frustrating, for example, if a witness testifies, she was about as tall as you, and then there's no follow-up. What has to happen there is, you know, the witness says she was about as tall as you, and then you say, oh, okay, so she was about five, six, and you get the witness to agree or disagree, but they need to get a height on the record. Um, you know, if they're saying she was about as far away from me as you are, then you need to follow up and say, so about 15 feet. Um, if the race of your client or of a witness is important for any reason, then you need to get that established on the record through testimony. Uh, and really anything else that might happen during the trial that is relevant for the appeals court's consideration that, that they cannot read in a paper record has to be described. Um, I have this example here, which really did happen in one of our cases where the prosecutor took the gun and waved it around at the jury during his closing argument. If that's happening, no one's going to know it unless you well, object to it, but also 
in making your objection say he's waving his gun, the gun around, it's being pointed at the jury. Um, otherwise, they're just not going to know it. Similarly, if a juror is crying or is sleeping, that's not on the record unless it's described. It's also important to make sure that the trial is actually recorded. Uh, and this is uh, a burden that falls on defense counsel. Um, you wanna make sure the FTR system is working before you begin, especially at sidebars. And I think you know, it's okay to ask the judge if the system can be tested just to make sure that it is in fact recording. If you have any doubts on that score, you should ask to pause and check to make sure that it is. It's really, really frustrating to try uh, to reconstruct a record. It's frustrating for both sides, um, you know, because ideally it involves cooperation on both sides. Uh, and it's, it's not fun to go through. Um, and, and so do what you can to make sure that the trial is actually being recorded. It's also really helpful for defense counsel to keep a note of what time hearings start and end, uh, because when you go to order the transcripts, at least in some courts, that's gonna be really important information to have. Okay, moving on to a, a few areas of specific concern during the, the course of the trial. And the first one is uh, jury selection. Uh, one thing to know for defense lawyers is that to preserve the denial of a four-cause challenge for appellate review, you have to use all of your peremptory challenges and then be forced to accept a juror who otherwise would have been struck. So if there is a juror who you think should be removed because he or she has exhibited some kind of bias that makes them unable to participate impartially in the trial. Um, if you've made that objection and it's been overruled, uh, it's only going to work as an appellate issue if it then forces you to use a peremptory challenge that you otherwise would not have used and to get stuck with the juror that you didn't want. Um, you know, so if you you're in the district court and you only have two peremptories and you use one on that juror but then you don't use the other one the appeals court is just going to say no harm no foul um if this is this is an interesting situation that i have seen come up if you have one peremptory left um but you don't use it because you know that the next juror coming up is um I don't know, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe not palatable to the defendant because uh, her whole family is police officers. You can put on the record that I have this, I, I would have used as peremptory, but I can't because I, we can't get to the next juror. It would be, it would be less desirable for my client. Um, and that may work to preserve the issue. Um, I, I think that remains an open question under the case law. I, I believe Julie is also going to talk about bats and sores issues in her presentation. Um, but it is illegal to use a peremptory challenge. It is illegal, I should say, for either, either side, defense attorney or prosecutor, to use a peremptory strike based on race, ethnicity, national origin, gender, or religion, and probably sexual orientation. The SJC has not had to decide the, that last issue, but I would be very surprised if they wouldn't conclude that that was an improper basis for a peremptory strike. Um, so where you think that your adversary has improperly used a peremptory, you need to object on that basis. Um, and this may require you to be a little bit presumptuous about the juror's racial or ethnic identity, because of course you don't, you, you don't necessarily know um, with this juror who you've just met how they identify in terms of race or ethnicity. Um, uh, or perhaps gender, um, but uh, in 
Commonwealth versus Robertson, a 2018 case, the SJC said that where the juror's membership in a protect, protected class is reasonably in dispute, um, that the judge should presume that they are a member of the protected class at issue, right? That is that if the defendant is objecting to the use of the peremptory and the defendant is saying, I think this juror is Latina um, and making an argument on that basis, then the judge, you know, if, if there's a reasonable basis to think that that's correct, then the judge should presume that it's true. Um, if it's helpful, you can put on the record the number and percentage of people in that same group who have already been struck by your adversary. Uh, but it is true that a single peremptory can be enough to make out a prima facie case requiring a, the, a, a group neutral reason to be provided. Um, and I think Julie is gonna get into to when prosecutors wanna just go ahead and offer that group neutral reason. Um, Okay, so I'm going to move on to closing argument and jury instructions. And I just want to note as I start this um, that I think there's a little bit of a funny divide for trial counsel and appellate lawyers in this area because I know, and, and this may be something that applies particularly to less experienced trial lawyers, which is a stage I never advanced beyond. Um, but I very distinctly remember my first trial giving my closing argument and then just sort of collapsing next to my client at, at our table. And I don't know that I heard anything the prosecutor said, and I definitely don't think I heard much of the jury instructions. I certainly didn't have a copy of the instructions with me. Um, it was all very much less than ideal um, from the appellate perspective, because from the appellate perspective, we we find that closing argument and jury instructions can be a really ripe area for appellate review if um, if there's an error that is preserved. Um, that is, that, you know, if you object to to a real error in a, in a prosecutor's closing argument um, or in the giving of the jury instructions, we often can get relief uh, when that issue is preserved. Um, and so much as you may be exhausted at that point and ready for it to all be over, it really is not over. And it's, it's very important to pay close attention to the closing arguments that your adversary gives and then to the judge's instructions. Um, I have, and I'm not gonna really go through the types of closing arguments that are objectionable. I have a list here of the areas that we see most commonly. You'll see there's a space on the page, which is kind of, I think the dividing line between things that apply to everybody, um, things that go both ways, and then to problems like burden shifting that only apply to arguments that prosecutors make. Um, a couple of things that I'll note in this area is that I think for facts not in evidence, you th th that is a common mistake that we see. And I think one reason that it often happens is um, is not intentional, but just that if the evidence happens to come in differently than a prosecutor expected it to, they may misstate the evidence in accordance with what they thought the witness was going to say rather than what she actually did say. Um, and so if you have a case where that has happened, right, where you know the prosecutor expected the testimony to come in differently than it did, just be on alert for that kind of mistake in the closing argument um, so that you can be prepared to object to it. Uh, um, the other mistake that I think I, I see somewhat frequently from, I think, probably less experienced assistant district attorneys is the, the use of evidence that was admitted for a limited purpose um, to, uh, 
to do something beyond that limited purpose. So for example, if a witness is impeached with a prior inconsistent statement, that inconsistent statement is only coming in you know, to raise a question as to the witness's credibility and not as substantive evidence, um, but we will sometimes see a prosecutor rely on it substantively in closing. Um, and so when that happens, you also want to be alert for the possibility that there might be that kind of error in the closing argument so that you can be prepared to object to it. Um, in terms of when and how to object, uh, this is really an issue of tactic. I think most, um, you know, because you can, uh, an objection that's made either after the closing at sidebar or contemporaneously will preserve the issue for appellate review. And so whether to object during or after is tactical. I, I will say I think most judges will expect you only to object during your adversary's closing if it's truly egregious. Um, and I think that's how most lawyers treat their objections during closings. Um, and I will also note that the, you know, the, the fact that we're allowed to make our objections at sidebar after the closing argument is different than how this usually works, right? Like most of the time you have to be so on your toes and so ready to make the argument. And in this context, you get to sit there and, and take notes and write down all the reasons that you think something is problematic and then go up with a little time to think about it, to describe it to the judge. Um, but there may be moments when what's said crosses such a line or when you're worried about where the argument is headed that you do feel like you need to interrupt and, and um, stop it, you know, sort of nip it in the bud before it gets worse. Um, and that is permissible uh, under the, the rules in the case law. Um, I think it's also important to know that when you make the objection, the issue is not how your adversary intended the argument to be perceived. It is how the jury might reasonably understand the argument. Um, and so I, I once had a trial that was, it was a very short trial. The only witness was the, I mean, the only witnesses were the complaining witnesses and the responding police officer. And in his closing argument, the prosecutor said to the jury, um, you only heard from one person who was there during the incident. And the only people that there during the incident were my client and the complaining witness. And so I immediately heard that as a comment on my client's failure to testify. And I actually did object during that closing because it seemed like such a fundamental violation of my client's rights to make that argument. Um, and when we got up to sidebar, the prosecutor immediately turned to me and said, I'm so sorry, that's not what I meant. What I just meant that the, pros I mean, the police officer wasn't there, um, which was an argument he was making because the police officer had actually been pretty helpful to the defendant in the case. Uh, and what I didn't know and what I wish I would have known to say is that, like, sure, I, I totally believed him. Um, I don't think he was trying to make a pernicious argument, but it just doesn't matter because it was, you know, reasonably susceptible to being understood as a comment on my, on my client's silence. Um, and that is what the judge has to consider. So after you've made your objection, you're gonna to wanna to ask for specific curative instruction that is tailored to the improper argument. You want it to tell the jury what the improper argument was, why it was improper, and that they have to disregard it entirely. And if the judge declines or gives a curative instruction that doesn't actually cure the problem, you need to object again in order to preserve the issue. If the judge gives a curative instruction and you don't object again, the appeals court is going to think you're satisfied with it. 
A question that I get all the time in this context is, um, what if I think I need to move for a mistrial? And I think uh, defense lawyers are often torn on this because they may feel like the trial was going really well, but then the prosecutor made this argument that was really out of bounds and also really compelling and so really hurt my case. Um, what do I do? Uh, and I think in this context, it's useful to know about the first Commonwealth versus Brangan, not the bail case, but an earlier, um, an earlier Brangan. Uh, because in that case, the SJC endorsed a procedure by way, if you find yourself in that situation, um, by way of which you can ask the judge to take your motion for a mistrial under advisement until after the verdict to wait and see if the jury reaches a not guilty verdict, notwithstanding the improper argument. Um, and I, you know, essentially what they said is that is a judicially efficient thing to do. Um, and it avoids, uh, you know, what might feel like the unfairness of having your victory snatched away by having to ask for a mistrial um, because of an impermissible argument. So that's something you can consider. Um, I think it's only gonna happen when the judge agrees that the argument was really out of bounds. Um, it's not something they're gonna do for the, for, the, for the mistake that's kind of on the line. Um, but if you find yourself in a situation like that, you can ask for that. Okay, I've listed here some considerations for jury instructions. I know I don't wanna eat up too much of Julia's time. Um, so I won't go through all of these, um, except to say that you should just, you wanna think through the appropriateness of the standard instructions for your case and consider both whether there are additional issues in your case that you'd like the judge to instruct the jury on, and also whether um, some of the standard instructions might actually be inappropriate in light of how the evidence came in in your case. Um, and so, for example, if, you know, if there's an instruction that discusses multiple theories of culpability, uh, for example, you know, uh, assault and battery, which has both an intentional and a recklessness theory, if there's no physical injury in your case, then the judge shouldn't instruct the jury on the reckless theory of assault and battery. I mean, you want to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, you've got to make any objections to the instructions before the judge sends the jury out to deliberate. Uh, and um, if, uh, if you request an instruction and it's denied, that, that should preserve the issue, but you can always renew it at the, close of, uh, of, at the close of the charge when the judge may ask you if you're satisfied with the instructions at that point. You, if you've asked for an instruction that hasn't been permitted or if an objection has not been sustained, uh, then you just wanna say that you're satisfied except for and, and note again whatever previous issues you've raised. Okay, I'm very briefly gonna talk about Rule 15 because I think Julie's also covering this, but in terms of motions to dismiss, the thing to know is that the Commonwealth gets to do those, gets to appeal an order allowing a motion to dismiss as of right and defendants do not get to appeal them under Rule 15. If you have a motion to dismiss that rested on double jeopardy grounds, you may have a basis to file a 211-3, but otherwise you don't have any appellate recourse um, on an interlocutory basis. For motions to suppress, either party can apply for a leave to 
for leave to appeal a motion to suppress, uh, there is a standing order that you can find on the internet or you can email me and I'll send it to you uh, that explains what should be included in those. Key things to know are that you need to file your notice of appeal and the application within 30 days. Um, and you can do an opposition if the Commonwealth uh, or your adversary <laughs> has filed one. Um, those are almost always decided in the papers. I have never seen one not decided on the papers, although I think uh, the ruler, the standing order, at least contemplates that that perhaps they might um, be subject to argument. And conditional guilty pleas are, are now permitted in Massachusetts for a defendant who wishes to challenge the denial of his motion to suppress. Uh, and this procedure obviates the need to do the kind of evidence stipulated bench trial that we used to see and that um, can often pose uh, sort of procedural problems. Um, it does require the written agreement of the prosecutor and you must specify the ruling that is being appealed and that reversal of the ruling would render the Commonwealth case not viable on at least one or more specified charges. So this won't work in a case um, where the Commonwealth could proceed to trial even if you won the motion to suppress, um, but it's something to consider in a case where the motion would have been dispositive. All right, I think that's all the substantive stuff I had. I just want to very briefly cover the obligations of defense counsel after a trial loss, which is you need to file a notice of appeal within 30 days of sentencing, um, which should include a certificate of service. And, and if you are assigned trial counsel, you should notify CPCS the day that you file the notice of appeal. Uh, and do not withdraw from the case until appellate counsel has entered appearance. Um, those things are necessary to make sure your client and the case do not fall. Um, through the cracks. My advice is that you should always file the notice of appeal so that your client can have an opportunity to consult with an appellate attorney who has read a transcript. Sometimes there will be reasons that it doesn't make sense for a client to pursue an appeal, um, but that's a decision that he should get to make after he talks to a different attorney who has reviewed the transcript. Um, you should also order the transcripts and you should submit an appeal referral form to CPCS, again, if it's an assigned case, which is available on our website um, or I can email it to you. Um, that is the only way that we know the appeal is happening. And so it's really critical uh, that you send that to us so that we can get counsel assigned. Um, and finally, you can consider moving to stay the sentence if you think uh, there's a good issue in your case and that, um, that there's a chance of reversal on appeal, you can move to stay it. It's got to be filed first um, in the trial court. And if you lose there, it can be appealed to a single justice of the appeals court. Um, all right, I am going to stop there and turn it over to Julie. Thank you. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, so just briefly, I am going to, let me get um, my PowerPoint presentation up. One second. Oh, there we go. Um, so at the outset, I will say a lot of what Rebecca covered in terms of um, strategic decisions, making objections with specificity, um, all of that certainly applies um, to prosecutors as well. Um, I'm gonna try to not overlap on what she commented on, but 
objections from the Commonwealth are a bit of a different beast because the reality is uh, if we lose at trial, our objections are lost forever. They don't really matter. Um, we get that one bite at the apple. Um, if we win at trial, unless we're filing some type of cross appeal, largely our objections won't matter that much because it's going to be the defendant's objections um, and the defendant's claims on appeal that are really driving the appeal. So your tool as trial prosecutors when it comes to the objections is they're your avenue for trying to convince the judge to do what you want them to do. Um, uh, that being said, there are exceptions in which your objections do matter. Um, jury selection is one area with exercise of peremptory challenges or for cause challenges. Jury instructions, they certainly matter. Um, when we're talking about an error of law that a trial judge may be making, your objection uh, is extremely important um, because it gives us the opportunity to seek uh, appellate review on an emergency basis. and. Um, your objections may matter when it comes to evidentiary rulings and closing arguments. Um, I'll touch on this a bit later when I talk about 211.3 petitions, but um, unfortunately, when it comes to evidentiary rulings, if you lodge an objection and the judge overrules your objection and the evidence comes in, a reviewing single justice is going to be looking at that on an abuse of discretion basis. And so in that way, it may be more difficult to raise an appellate argument with respect to objections you lodge when it comes to evidence. Um, but still, obviously, you should be making the objections because it's your one shot to get it excluded. Um, so in my presentation, I'll, this is sort of the order in which I'll address things. Motions and limine and um, evidence and getting evidence in. Uh, jury selection and challenges, uh, closing arguments, uh, which closing arguments and jury instructions are probably two of the areas in which we see uh, the most appellate issues raised, I would, I would say. Um, and then I'll briefly explain a little bit uh, about Rule 15 without overlapping what Rebecca's covered and a little bit about 211.3, just so that you have an understanding of what those rules um, and what that statute section means uh, in terms of appellate review. Um, so motions and limine. It, it, it often surprises me um, how you know, a prosecutor may have this critical piece of evidence and yet they didn't file a motion in limine to admit it. If you anticipate an objection and the evidence is important to your case, file a motion in limine. And I say this because it prompts the trial prosecutors to begin thinking about how they're getting that evidence in before they get it in. Just because you put in a great piece of evidence at grand jury does not mean it will come in at trial, given the rules of evidence that apply at trial. Um, and I unfortunately have personally fielded phone calls from trial prosecutors who have wanted to get something in that they admitted at grand jury and was a great piece of evidence and it just can't come in at trial. And I have to tell them that. Um, I, it's always better for you to be thinking ahead of the game uh, when it comes to what you want to get in and how you want to get it in. 
the other piece of evidence that I'll say about seeking to admit evidence is any time I have ever gone to trial, I have had a physical copy of the Massachusetts Guide to Evidence with me. Um, that's a critical tip because I have literally gone to sidebar with the guide to evidence open and had judges reading it along with me in order to either support my objection or support why I'm looking to seek uh, admission of evidence. Um, all of the judges in Massachusetts are provided with a copy of the guide to evidence, but Obviously, if I, it's easier for me if I'm sitting at my table and I can open up the book and then show the judge why specifically a piece of evidence that the defendant seeking to admit cannot come in. Um, one of the, some of the pieces of evidence that I think the guide to evidence has been really critical um, in my experience in convincing judges whether to sustain an objection or allow uh, a piece of evidence in, is that any time, um, I've had, uh, in some homicide cases, movie montages, so basically clips of surveillance video that have been stitched together. Uh, the defendant always objects because it's, it's the Commonwealth's argument in a movie form. Um, the Guide to Evidence has some specific rulings that address that type of evidence. Um, I've also seen it be extremely helpful in terms of looking to admit summaries of large compilations of evidence, cell phone records, if you know you only want to admit a chart of the relevant phone calls, um, things like that, business records, same thing, and exceptions to the hearsay rule. Um, the guide to evidence I'm telling you is your best friend in making objections and trying to convince a judge why your objection is proper. Um, if you have even a slight concern that the defendant might try to admit evidence you consider inadmissible, don't wait until he does it to lodge your objection. Um, get ahead of it, file a motion in limine. Um, the one uh, thing that I will mention is that if evidence is excluded or redacted, and I think Rebecca's slides touched on this, um, so think of recorded phone calls, medical records, larger, you know, other documents, have whatever is redacted or excluded marked for identification. Um, I've had cases where telephone calls, um, you know, a series of telephone calls from a defendant were sought to be admitted and only several were admitted, some were objected to and excluded, and I didn't have the unredacted phone calls. Um, it ended up being okay in that scenario, but it certainly likely would have been easier if the unredacted phone calls were already part of the record. So anytime you're looking at an exclusion or a redaction, make sure you're marking um, whatever isn't coming in for identification. Um, In-court identifications. I bring this up because um, under Commonwealth v. Creighton and Commonwealth v. Collins, it's the burden is really on the Commonwealth to move in limine to uh, elicit an in-court of identification. Um, they're not suppression issues, and, and this is part of why I wanted to touch on this as well. Um, my unit has dealt with a, a couple of situations in which I believe it was defendants seeking to suppress an in-court identification because there was no prior out-of-court identification. Um, suppression is not the way to handle it because you can't suppress evidence that has not yet been obtained. Um, so Commonwealth v. Creighton is really sort of the, um, the first case in this line of cases when an eyewitness has not participated before trial in an identification procedure, we shall treat the in-court ID as an in-court show-up and shall admit it only when there is good reason. Um, 
Good reason may include prior familiarity. Uh, it applies um, only to an in-court identification of the defendant. My position is that it doesn't apply to in-court identification of other people. Um, at least in Creighton, it was an in-court identification of a specific defendant. So those are things to keep in mind when litigating these. Um, and like I said, this should be addressed with a motion in limine. Uh, whenever you seek to have a witness identify the defendant and that witness has not done an out-of-court ID procedure, you wanna file that motion in limine. You should do it as early as possible uh, because it sort of gives you the opportunity to you know, an in-court identification may be a big part of your case. It may be a small part of your case. But again, the earlier you're thinking about these things and putting the issue on the court's radar, the better position you will be in. Um, the other uh, seminal case here is Commonwealth v. Collins, where a witness before trial has made something less than an unequivocal positive identification of the defendant during a non-suggestive ID procedure. We shall admit the in-court show up uh, of the defendant only where there is good reason for it. Um, so in Collins, it was an interesting situation in which uh, there were the defend the witness had narrowed down a, a photo lineup to two different people, but I don't think he was able to specify which one. So he failed to make a positive, unequivocal identification. Um, however, since Collins you know, there's been litigation about what constitutes a positive unequivocal identification. Does a certain percentage, I'm 90% sure that's him. Um, does that constitute a positive unequivocal identification? Um, there's been case law that suggests, you know, selecting one photo and having a witness say that looks like the assailant, that's fine. Um, so those are just, again, they're, they're issues you need to be thinking about beforehand, and they're really issues that should be addressed in a motion and eliminate, not a suppression issue. Then sort of just going through the life of a trial, the um, jury selection and avoiding reversible error is sort of one of the areas that I'm constantly reminding uh, trial attorneys about. Um, as Rebecca said, it is, not appropriate to uh, strike a juror on the basis of race, religion, ethnicity. Um, and that goes for either the, the prosecution or the defense. Um, step So the reason this becomes a problem on appeal is because often the appellate record does not capture what's truly happening in jury selection while it's occurring and uh, while it's occurring quickly, more often than not. So it's important that trial prosecutors understand the steps for a Batson source analysis. So obviously step one, you, or a prosecutor has used a peremptory challenge to strike a, a, a person of color um, and the defendant objects and suggests there's been a pattern here um, of, that the peremptory challenge was used improperly. So step one, the judge must determine whether a prima facie showing has been made of the improper use of the peremptory. Uh, and that question is really, does has the prosecutor engaged in a pattern of excluding members of a discrete group and are those people likely being excluded solely on the basis of race or gender? Jones, uh, is a case that sort of outlines all of the factors a judge is considering at that initial step. Um, 
the next step in the process is if a judge decides there is a prima facie showing, the judge must inquire why the prosecutor exercised a peremptory challenge. So this is technically step two, but the SJC in many, many cases, in many footnotes, in the body of many opinions, has repeatedly encouraged judges to ask for the reason prior to deciding whether there is a prima facie showing. Um, and that's going to come, it's something for prosecutors to consider whether or not you want to give your reason up front. My personal opinion and advice is that if you have a basis that, that you can articulate, you should offer that to the judge. Um, that is, if it's not race, if it's race neutral and gender neutral. Um, if you are looking at someone and you want to strike them and you're having difficulty, difficulty articulating why, I think as a prosecutor, you really have an obligation to evaluate your own unconscious bias and why you may or may not be, why you may be looking to strike someone. Um, you know, so my take is that it, it, if you want to strike someone and you have a reason for it, don't shy away from the reason. I know a lot of um, practitioners who have been practicing far longer than I disagree with that, and, and there's certainly merit to that position as well. Uh, the argument is often the whole point of a peremptory is I don't have to give a reason. And that's true. But given that on appeal, if an appellate court disagrees with how the trial judge um, handled the bats and sores challenge, you're facing reversible error. Um, I think it's I think it's worth putting your reasons on the record, even if you're not asked. The third step of the Batson Soares analysis is once a prosecutor states the reason, the judge must make a finding and decide whether that reason is adequate and genuine. And these have specific legal meanings. Um, adequate means it's clear, it's reasonably specific to the juror. And genuine means that's the sincere, credible, true reason for the strike. So genuine is really the judge saying, I believe you, Mr. or Mrs. Prosecutor, um, that the reason you just gave me is the reason you're striking the juror. The judge could always say, I don't believe you, and I'm not going to let you um, use a challenge. But understanding these two terms is important because I'm not sure that judges always understand uh, the legal meaning behind adequate and genuine and what this third step evaluation really entails. Um, so like I touched on, the reason the bats and sores issues create appellate problems is because if the judge stops, if a prosecutor moves to strike someone and the judge stops at the very first step saying, I, I, I hear your objection defense counsel, but I'm finding no pattern of exclusion based on race and gender. If an appellate court disagrees with that, the conviction is vacated because the SJC has held that to be structural error where prejudice is presumed. Um, that seems to be the way in which the appellate courts are handling these cases. And it becomes a problem because if the judge simply states there's no pattern here and the prosecutor has not given a reason and the judge hasn't weighed that reason, the appellate courts will just simply vacate the conviction if they find that there was an error at that first step. Uh, and that's part of why I think it's important uh, and incumbent upon prosecutors to offer the reason. Um, the other thing that about this specific problem to keep in mind is in Commonwealth v. Ortega, which is a 2018 case, uh, it's actually my case, um, 
we had pushed for a remand because there, uh, the quoted language there is in a footnote in Ortega where the SJC said, that being said, we acknowledge the constitutionally permissible option of remanding for an evidentiary hearing at which the Commonwealth would bear the burden of establishing a race-neutral justification for the challenge, which would render the judge's error harmless. Although we have long disfavored this approach, there might be circumstances in which remand is appropriate. Um, that's sort of a window that appellate prosecutors, I think, are aware of and are looking to expand on because remanding for an evidentiary hearing at least provides the Commonwealth in a way almost an ability to articulate what the reason was. Um, but I will say largely that appellate courts are simply vacating these convictions. So you shouldn't bank on there being a remand. Um, and the other appellate problem, as I said, judges may not actually know the definition of adequate and genuine. If they apply the wrong legal standard and they do not permit your strike, consider you can consider filing a 211-3 um, because the inquiry is not you know, if a judge, if you state your reason and a judge says, well, Commonwealth, I simply don't think that's good enough. That's not the analysis. And it's frankly applying it an inaccurate, um, an inaccurate legal standard. So I think those are the areas in which um, you want to have a solid record of, of why you are seeking to challenge somebody. And it, it works both ways. If, um, if, you have an objection to a defense uh, pattern of strikes, which does happen. Um, it's another avenue in which if a, if a juror is seated that you don't believe should or that, um, or if you lose a juror because you think the defendant was improperly using peremptory challenges, your objections are important um, and you want to think about whether or not it's worth filing an emergency 211-3 petition in that situation. Um, I threw this in with jury selection because in, um, in Commonwealth v. Weaver, um, which ultimately was heard by the Supreme Court, uh, I believe the issue was that uh, jury selection in the old days, you know, you'd kick everyone out of the courtroom to line up the jurors for jury selection. I, that's not permissible. You have to make sure as a prosecutor that during jury selection and throughout the entire trial that members of the public are per permitted to enter and exit the courtroom. That being said, there are cases in which there are significant security concerns for witnesses or victims. Um, if you have security concerns based on prior specific instances of witness intimidation, inappropriate use of cell phones in a courtroom or social media, file a motion in limine to seek additional security measures. That being said, you must be specific as to why you are seeking those uh, measures. It's not, it's not enough that to speak generally, well, we have gang concerns or something to that effect. You really need a history in your case of some type of witness intimidation in order to really justify those additional security measures. They can include a sign-in sheet or um, pr a prohibition on cell phones in a courtroom. Um, closing argument rules. I did copy this from Rebecca's um, presentation because they are really the as she said, the most common things that we see on appeal. And I think prosecutors, at least in my experience, often don't even realize when they're doing it um, or when they're violating one of these rules. Um, I would advise trial prosecutors that if you're, if you're prepping your closing argument and you think, gee, I might be close to the line on this, 
call an appellate prosecutor and ask them what their gut reaction is because, you know, it's not often, I would say, you know, you'll call an appellate prosecutor who will immediately sit back and be like, ha, ah, you can't say that. Um, or may caution you or could help you phrase it better so that it is not violating one of these rules. Um, at least in Suffolk County, I know our appellate team is happy to engage in those conversations. Um, I will say, you know, in general with uh, uh, closing arguments, one error may be okay. It may not if it's an egregious error that you've made and it goes uncorrected. Um, but multiple errors in a closing argument can be a really, really, really big problem. Um, and the judge simply offering general instructions may not be enough to cure the problems a trial prosecutor has created. So um, if a defendant objects and you get a specific limiting instruction because the judge feels you overstepped, um, that might be embarrassing in that moment, but I can tell you that your appellate prosecutors are thanking that judge because a specific curative instruction is a good thing for uh, the Commonwealth if there was in fact an error in the closing argument. Um, a couple of golden rules, in my opinion, there is absolutely no place for ever mentioning defense counsel's name in your closing argument, let alone in a disparaging way. Um, I've seen this happen more than I should. Uh, sometimes, you know, the prosecutor says, well, he was coming, you know, he commented on me. You can't, you can't fight fire with fire. Um, there's just no place for it. Uh, the same thing with commenting on a defendant's silence. Um, and really, commenting on a defendant's silence and burden shifting can happen very subtly. So I just caution trial prosecutors about that. And again, which is why I sort of have an open invitation, call me if you want to run some language by me. Um, a couple of other things that I think have come up often is vouching for witnesses. And again, I think this is done often subtly, sometimes not so subtly, but you can't just say because my child witness came in and this was, or a, a victim of sexual assault, and this whole experience is especially traumatic. You can't say that, that therefore they should be believed. And sometimes it's that explicit and sometimes it's not, but you really need to be careful and be aware of where you're going in your closing argument. Um, as I said, those the, don't fight fire with fire. Um, the appellate courts are not going to take kindly to it. Um, and the rules cut both ways. You know, I think I think trial prosecutors are hesitant to bother to object to defense counsel's closings. I think there are objections worth making. If nothing else, um, it's possible you can collect, you can convince a judge to give a, a limiting instruction, which would be very helpful. And if not, at least the appeals court. Um, sees that that defense counsel had an objectionable closing as well. Um, very quickly, jury instructions. As a trial prosecutor and when I was in district court, I've rested my closing and the judge is launching in instructions and I'm zoning out. Um, it's not the time to zone out. I, I know it becomes sort of the easy part to zone out on, but they're important and um, again, convictions can be vacated over it. Uh, you should frankly be thinking about your instructions before you even start your trial. Uh, and I say that especially if there's a complicated self-defense issue or if your case presents a unique fact pattern. Um, there's nothing stopping you from filing jury instructions when you file your motions in limine. 
especially, you know, it may be the case that you wanted to wait to hear how evidence came out. Um, you can always file supplemental jury instructions. And I say this because, um, especially when it comes to complex self-defense issues, calling appeals, your appellate unit, or speaking to a pro another prosecutor on the day before the charge conference, it, it puts, it, it makes your case harder to, to, to satisfy what you need to prove with your instructions. Um, in terms of appeals, if you believe an instruction the judge intends to read is an error of law, raise the objection that is an area in which uh, appellate prosecutors may seek emergency relief to have a proper, um, a proper instruction read to the jury, because obviously that is super critical. Um, quickly, Rule 15, um, just because we, we talked about it earlier, uh, as Rebecca said, the Commonwealth is allowed as a matter of right from a motion to dismiss. Um, with respect to motions to suppress, both the defense and the government have to ask, file a petition asking to seek leave to pursue an interlocutory appeal. Um, often this doesn't happen for defense attorneys because our the Commonwealth's position is, listen, for judicial economy, if they lose a trial, then they can appeal this. If they win a trial, there's no reason to hear an appeal. Um, we're in a different position as the government because if we lose this evidence that's critical to our case, the case is likely over. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, sort of the importance of the evidence. Um, another thing to keep in mind is if it's documentary evidence. So if you have a video recording of a um, interview, that's something that the appellate court can review on its own and is not limited to findings of fact. Um, and then finally, uh, 211.3s. So as I said, Rule 15 covers appeals from, um, from motions to dismiss and suppression motions. General, uh, General Laws Chapter 211, Section 3 is really our avenue for extraordinary relief. It permits, um, it's what the SJC uses as their general superintendent's powers to correct issues in the lower courts. Largely, you'll see these um, when we're looking to appeal discovery orders, sentencing orders, bail revocation, or mid-trial legal errors, like when it comes to jury selection or um, um, closing our uh, jury instructions, I apologize. Um, and finally, um, discretionary calls by a judge um, are unlikely to call for extraordinary re relief. And I say that because those discretionary calls are typically what I was referring to when you're objecting to evidence coming in. Um, that's a hard burden on appeal for us to take that up. Sometimes we will if the evidence that was, that your evidence was excluded and you really, really need it. Um, sometimes if what the defendant's seeking to admit is so egregious, we'll seek a 211-3. But when it comes to a discretionary call, it's often very difficult for us to seek appellate review. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. And with that, I am done. Great. Well, thank you both very much. That was a great presentation. We didn't get many questions, so um, I think uh, I think that's that's the end. So I think we'll wrap up. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all very much.